We serve an awesome God or what? Amen. 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 This last Monday, I had the opportunity to take my family, my wife and my daughters to a movie that I had been wanting to see over the last few weeks. The movie was Harriet. It's the first feature-length film that depicts the life of Harriet Tubman, the best-known, most famous leader of the Underground Railroad in the years leading up to the American Civil War. It's a beautiful story, and in the movie, much of it is very accurate. Uh, They took some artistic license with some other parts of the movie, but it's a very well-done documentary of sorts, but a full-length movie that tells that beautiful story of Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in rural Maryland sometime between 1820 and 1825. She herself wasn't even quite sure exactly what year she was born. And by the age of 25 or so, she had had enough with slavery. And so she had this resolve to break free from that tyranny of slavery and run to freedom in Pennsylvania. And so she had decided to run away from her slave master with her brothers and the time came for them to run away and the brothers kind of chickened out. So there she was, Harriet Tubman, all of five feet tall, She ran, and she walked, and she crawled 100 miles on foot to Pennsylvania. Seemingly an impossible task for a woman who'd only traveled a few miles from her home. But she made it to freedom. And she told those afterwards that when she was about to cross the Pennsylvania border, she saw the sun coming up ahead of her over the horizon, and she said it looked like gold coming through the trees. And she was finally free. And she was there for a little while, but she didn't feel like she was at home. As she said it, she was like a stranger living in a strange land. And so after a while, she decided, even though she had very little support, she was going to turn back and return to Maryland to save her parents, to save her brothers and sisters, and to save her husband. And so she turned around with very little support, went back to Maryland, and between 1850 and 1860, over that 10-year period, she returned to Maryland 13 times to set 70 African Americans free from slavery. Amen? And something most people don't know about Harriet Tubman when the Civil War began She was put in charge of a battalion, one of the only women in U.S. history to ever lead a combat unit in the military. She led a battalion back south, and they set another 700 slaves free. Amen? I'm sorry, Harriet, I shortchanged her. It was actually 750. She was without a doubt an American hero. And as the film depicts so well, she was a very strong believer and follower of Jesus Christ. She had very deep faith in God and she trusted Him to guide her steps and give her courage to do what God had called her to do. And God never, ever let her down. Amen? We serve an awesome God. I want you to take out your Bibles. Hopefully you brought your Bible with you today. If not, bring it with you next week. Uh, I don't want to take for granted that everyone in the room has a Bible of their own. That's why every Sunday here at Impact, we bring New Testaments, and whenever possible, we bring whole Bibles to give away 
If you need a Bible of your own at home, you can see Amber at the table after the service. In the meantime, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of those blue ones from the rack in front of you, and uh, you'll find the passage today on page 1192 in one of those blue Bibles. Everyone else, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to continue our look at this great faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll be starting in a moment in verse 24. Also, if you're sitting near an aisle, we've got our message notes there stacked up on the end seat in your aisle. If you could grab one copy of the message notes and pass the others down to others in your row, uh, that would be great. There'll be some blanks to fill in, some place to jot down some notes as we dive into this message that I think is so, so important today. I hope that every teenager in this room is paying attention to this message. I hope that every adult in this room is paying attention to this message. Because I want to tell you from the get-go here that our culture has sold us a bill of goods. And we're going to open God's Word today and see where our culture has led us astray and see instead what God's perfect plan is for us, specifically in regard to our identity. So we're in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 24. If you're there, please say amen. Here we go, starting in verse 24 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses... When he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the honor we have today to study it together in this room. Lord, sometimes our ears are slow to listen. Would you touch our ears today and help us to hear what you want to say to us and shut out the distractions around us? Lord, would you touch our minds because our minds have a tendency to wander and we don't need our our minds to wander while you're teaching us, O God. Would you touch our hearts, O God, and soften them to allow your word to sink deeply into our hearts? Lord, would you touch our bodies? Because when you give us your word, you expect us to walk in obedience to your word. May our bodies walk in obedience as we move forth from this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, most of the faith heroes that are spotlighted here in Hebrews chapter 11 have one or at the most two verses dedicated to them, but there's two exceptions to that. The first is Abraham. We spent several Sundays looking at Abraham because a lot is said about him here in Hebrews 11. He was one of our greatest heroes of the faith, wasn't he? And then Moses, we just read these six verses. Moses is another one that has more verses dedicated to him here in Hebrews 11 than just about any other faith hero. And so the writer of Hebrews knew that God wanted us to spend a little bit more time focusing on Abraham and a little bit more time focusing on Moses. Moses, of course, was that great deliverer, that great deliverer. He was actually one of Harriet Tubman's heroes. 
And she was even nicknamed at times Moses for her efforts to set her people free. And so Moses was the great hero of the Old Testament that God raised up to lead over one million Jews out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land that God had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here is Moses is spotlighted in these six verses. I want to share with you rather quickly three faith milestones that are identified in these six verses for Moses. These were three milestones in his journey of faith. The first of those, it's your first blank on your handout, is the refusal of faith. The refusal of faith. The refusal of faith. Remember that during the first 40 years of his life, Moses had it made in the shade. He was raised in the palace as a prince of Egypt. He was adopted by the princess of Egypt as a baby. And he was raised there in that palace. He lived the life of a king. But we read here in verse 24, Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We're going to talk about that a bit today. Remember that definition of faith we've been looking at over the last month. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's Word in spite of circumstances and in spite of, in spite of consequences. That's true Bible faith. And Moses definitely lived out that definition. He had confident obedience in God's Word in spite of circumstances and in spite of consequences. Moses, in faith, accepted the truth that his true identity was that of a God-worshipping Hebrew slave, not as a Pharaoh-worshipping prince of Egypt. So at the age of 40, Moses said, enough. He refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Well, that was the, the first step, the first milestone in Moses' journey of faith. It was the refusal of faith. Secondly, his second milestone was a rejection of faith. Notice in verses 25 and 26 that when Moses refused to be known as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, that didn't go over so well with the Egyptians, did it? Uh, they didn't care for that decision of Moses's. It says there in verses 25 and 26, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. He received disgrace for the sake of Christ. Now that may strike some of you as odd. Why would he regard disgrace for the sake of Christ? Uh, Moses lived some 1,200 years before Jesus was even born. So how could he regard disgrace for the sake of Christ? Well, there's two things that come to mind. Uh, number one, he worshipped the one true God. Amen? And we know the Bible teaches that our one true God is three in one. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you worship the Father, then you must also worship the Son. They're like a package deal. You can't have one without the other. If you're a worshiper of the Father, you better also be a worshiper of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Because the three are together in one. And as we've talked about in the past, if you try to strip away one of them from the other two, you have a stripped down version of God, and a stripped down version of God ain't God. You take the whole package, or you take none. They're three in one. So in a sense, he was worshiping Jesus, even though he didn't have the full extent knowledge of Jesus that we have today from a New Testament perspective. The second thing is, Moses, remember, went on to write the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So God had given him by revelation at least a minimal understanding that God had promised Abraham that through his seed all nations on earth would be blessed. And it wasn't just his descendants, plural, it was his seed, singular. 
So he had some understanding, Moses did, that one of these days, the people of Israel would give birth to the Messiah, the promised Christ, who would save the world. Amen? And so he was, in a very real sense, one who was willing to regard disgrace for the sake of Christ as something that was completely worthwhile. So these were his two first milestones of faith, the refusal of faith. And then the rejection of faith. And then thirdly, we find in the second part of verse 26, and then verses 27 through 29, the reward of faith. The reward of faith. As a resort, award for his faithful obedience to God, Moses' firstborn son wasn't killed when the death angel passed over on that first Passover night. There was a reward for his faith, for his faithful obedience. Also as a reward for his faithful obedience to God, Moses and his people were delivered from the Red Sea. It says that they were able to pass across the Red Sea as on dry land. Wouldn't that have been amazing to see? You know, this this sea here, and, and some of these critics will say, well, they must have found a sandbar, and it was maybe only a few feet deep. <clears throat> Those people don't know the Red Sea. This thing was deep. And just as it's often depicted in the movies or in even the cartoons where the walls of water are climbing up maybe 20 feet, that's probably a very realistic picture of how it looked as they walked across the Red Sea. As a reward for his faithful obedience, God delivered him through the Red Sea with his family and with his people. And since we know how the Bible ends, remember the second to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 21 describes heaven as a place where there's no more death and no more mourning and no more pain, no more funerals, I like to add, and no more cancer and no congestive heart failure and no more of the crud we deal with here on this planet. And so that is the place that Moses and faith looked forward to and you better believe that God rewarded him with that as well. So when we take Hebrews 11:24 through 29 together, it shows us these three faith milestones in Moses' faith journey. His faith started with a refusal to embrace his identity that his sinful culture had given him. The identity of a prince of Egypt. He refused to accept that identity. And then secondly, as he refused to accept his sinful culture's identity for him, he received a rejection by his culture. He didn't get any attaboys from the Egyptians when he decided, hey, I'm going to identify with the Hebrew slaves. No pats on the back, no high fives, no attaboys. He took rejection as his thank you for making the right decision. And then finally, God, because he took that stand, gave him a reward for his faith, salvation and deliverance and his heavenly rewards. Now, I'd like us to take a few minutes and make sure that we personalize this to consider what God's word is teaching us today about our identity. And this is so important. If I could speak to every teenager on the planet, I would love to share the message I'm about to share with you over the next few minutes. If I could speak to every young adult, if I could speak to every middle-aged adult, even every senior, I would love to share what I'm about to share with you because I think it's that important. When Moses was living as a prince of Egypt for the first 40 years of his life, I mentioned to you that he had it made in the shade, didn't he? He had it made. He had the best food in Egypt. He was dressed in the finest clothes in Egypt. You know, Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, they had nothing on Moses' wardrobe. This guy had it made the best food. He had the best wardrobe. He certainly had the best entertainment, the best that Africa could offer, the best 
that Egypt could offer, he had there at his beck and call. Moses probably could have had any woman that he wanted. After all, he was a prince. He could just name the woman he wanted and she probably would be given to him in marriage or maybe even as a harem. He probably had both options. And I don't know, I didn't expect an amen to that, but okay, we can amen that, praise God. And you better believe that there were a number of people looking at Moses, particularly the Egyptians, and they were saying to themselves, "Mm, that guy's got it made. He is the man. Man, I wish I could walk a day in his shoes. Moses has got it all set. He's got it going on. He must have been the envy of many in Egypt. I'm pretty sure he would have been the envy of many even in Israel. They looked to him. Those that knew that he was truly a Hebrew were a bit envious that he had it made. That's the life they must have said as they looked at Moses. But Moses gave it all up, didn't he? Once again, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why would he do that? Why on earth would he give it up if he had it made in the shade? And the answer is simply this. Moses refused to allow the sinful culture around him to define who he was. He only allowed God to define who he was. One of the things that really inspires me about Harriet Tubman is that she refused to allow the sinful culture around her to tell her who she was. She refused to allow her sinful culture to tell her what her identity was. If you think about it, if she escaped slavery somewhere around the age of 25, for 25 years, Harriet Tubman had been told that she was someone's property. For 25 years, she was told that she belonged to another person and he owned her. For 25 years, Harriet Tubman was told that she is property like a pig. She was told for 25 years that she is the N-word. And she probably heard this daily over and over and over and over again. She must have heard these things thousands of times in the first 25 years of her life. But she refused to believe it. She refused to accept the identity that her sinful culture was trying to force upon her. And she knew that her identity was not an identity given to her by man. Her true identity was an identity given to her by God. And she held on to that no matter what the voices around her were saying. She was told these things thousands of times, but she refused to believe it. She refused to accept it. She believed in her heart that God created her and every other person to be free. And that's what she took hold of. When the world around her tried to force her into its mold, she refused to be conformed to the pattern of this world. When the sinful culture around her tried to tell her what her identity was, she rejected her culture's labels. Her identity was in Christ. It was in Christ. And ours should be as well. Now let me ask you, how does our sinful culture teach us where to find our identity? For Harriet Tubman, her sinful culture was teaching her that she was property, that she was a pig, that she was someone's thing, that she was less than human. 
That she was the N-word. This was forced on her over and over. That's what her sinful culture was telling her. What was Moses' sinful culture telling him? Moses' sinful culture was telling him, you are a prince of Egypt. You are a prince of Egypt. You are a Pharaoh worshiper, not a Yahweh worshiper. You belong in this palace. You are above those people out there, those Hebrews. They are slaves and you are not. He rejected the labels. He rejected that identity that was forced upon him. And so did Harriet Tubman. We ask ourselves, what false identities does our culture face upon us? What, is they, what do they force upon us, I should say? And I gave this a lot of thought this last week. And I came up with 12 areas where our culture urges us to find our identity. And we're going to put these on the, on the screen here in just a moment. And we're going to go through these rather quickly, but we want to go through them one at a time. This is a top 12 list of where our culture urges you and me to find our identity. Number one, our culture tells us we should find our identity in our skin color. You should find your identity in your skin color. Are you black? Are you white? Are you brown? Are you yellow? Are you polka dot? You know, you pick. Find your identity in your skin color. Number two, our culture says we should find our identity in our sexuality. Let's stop there for just a moment. Our culture is a little obsessed with skin color, wouldn't you say? Our culture is obsessed with skin color. But I would say even more than that, our culture is even more obsessed with sex than it is with skin color. Our culture is obsessed with knowing everyone's personal sexual habits behind closed doors. And once someone decides that their sexual habits are a bit of an aberration from the majority's sexual habits, they have to come out of the closet and tell the whole world, here, behold my sexuality. Celebrate with me what I do sexually. Are you homosexual? Are you heterosexual? Are you lesbian? Our culture says that is a key component of our identity. Number three, our gender identity. This one's a doozy. I never would have imagined 20 years ago, most of you in this room probably wouldn't have imagined 20 years ago, how obsessed our culture would become with gender identity. Now, most of us in this room were taught this model. Let's put that next picture up. That there are two genders. On the left is a nice pink female. Symbolized with a little circle and a cross underneath. Pretty simple. And the other option, the only other option, is male, depicted in blue, a circle with an arrow pointing out diagonally up above. Those were the two genders that most of us were taught. It should be no surprise to any of you in the room today that this is no longer taught to our kids. Our culture has taken this very simple model and transformed it into this. And this isn't the full model. I mentioned as many of you before, that New York City now recognizes 31 different gender identities. It's not just male and female. So I've looked at this list in the past. I can't figure out three quarters of them. But you got male and female. You've got male to female. You've got female to male. You've got MTF and FTM. You've got uh, transvestite. You've got uh, a number of cross-dresser type identities. You've got drag king, drag queen, and the list goes on and on. That sounds pretty bad. 31 gender identities recognized in New York City. I like to say there's one gender identity for every day of the month. That's bad. How many of you are on Facebook? 
How many of you are afraid to admit it right now because you know where I'm going? Go ahead and raise your hand. I'm on Facebook too. I look at it just about every day. It's a social media platform I use more than any other. Okay, About half the room, we're on Facebook, right? Facebook is a very helpful social media platform. We as a church use a lot to reach people in our community, to post Bible verses, all sorts of things. But you know, Facebook kind of puts New York City to shame. Guess what? 58 gender identities recognized on Facebook. 58 gender identities. I looked at this list this last week. Catch this. 26 of the 58 gender identities are all forms of trans. You thought trans was one, L-G-P-T. T stands for trans. You thought there was just one? No, Facebook believes there are at least 26. And so you look at this list, and like I said, I don't understand three-quarters of them, and that's probably a very good thing. But this is the culture we live in. Our culture is obsessed with skin color and says you and I need to identify ourselves in large part based on the color of our skin. Number two, we need to identify ourselves in large part based on our sexuality. And number three, by our gender identity. And the list goes on. Number four, we need to identify ourselves by our political affiliation. Are we Republican or Democrat? Are we conservative? Are we liberal? Are we libertarian? Are we democratic socialist? Whatever that means. We are to identify ourselves and find our identity in our generation. Are we boomers? Are we Gen Xers? Are we millennials? And our teenagers here today, Gen Gen Zers. Uh, Number seven, we find our identity, our culture says, in our progeny. Do you have kids or you don't have kids? Do you have grandkids or not have grandkids? Uh, Number eight, this one I find particularly disturbing. We are supposed to find our uh, identity in our diagnosis. In our diagnosis. We walk out of a doctor's office or out of a psychologist or psychiatrist's office. He slaps a label on us and that becomes a huge part of our new identity. It's always surprised me when I meet someone and within the first minute or two of that conversation, speaking with someone for the first time, they say, yeah, my name is Ed and I'm bipolar. Okay, that that might be a challenge Ed deals with, but Ed has latched onto that as a key part of his identity. My name is Jane and I'm schizophrenic. Okay, that might be her cross to bear. I'm not denying that that's a very real thing and it's a very difficult thing to deal with, but really absorbing that is a key part of your identity. The same goes for physical illnesses. So many people latch onto their diabetes. That is a key part of my identity. They might say, as many of you know, my youngest daughter, nine-year-old Kara, she's got type 1 diabetes. It has nothing to do with her diet. It has nothing to do with exercise. Her immune system attacks her pancreas and attacks those cells that produce insulin. That brings our blood sugar down. Her blood sugar would go through the roof without artificial insulin. And so she's going to have to deal with this for the rest of her life unless God heals her or unless there's a cure. But even though she's dealt with this for the last four and a half years, I do not want my youngest daughter to absorb that as her primary identity. I'm a diabetic. That's who I am. We have to be so careful. We do not find our identity in our diagnosis. Number nine, we don't find our identity in our occupation. Teacher, nurse, sales rep, all wonderful positions, but that's not the core of our identity. Uh, Number ten, in our citizenship, that's not the core of our identity either. I'm a U.S. citizen or I'm not a U.S. citizen. 
I'm a resident of California or I'm not a resident of California. That's not the primary source of our identity. Neither is our education, whether you're a graduate or a dropout. And neither is your religion. The world throws that in, I would say, as number 12 on the list as kind of an afterthought. Oh yeah, and by the way, I'm Catholic. Or, oh, by the way, I'm Baptist. Or, by the way, I'm Protestant. Or, by the way, I'm Muslim. Or, I'm atheist or agnostic. To round off the top 12. So, this is the list. Our culture urges us to find our identity in these 12 things, especially in the top 3 to 5. So when someone asks me, Dane, tell me about yourself. Reveal your identity to me. Or if I'm filling out one of those stupid forms where I have to fill in those bubbles, tell me about yourself. Share your identity. I'm supposed to say first and foremost, I am a white, heterosexual male. Really? That's who Dane is. And if they have follow-up questions, I'm supposed to go on from there. Then I'm supposed to reveal my political affiliation. And then I'm supposed to uh, reveal that I'm a married Gen Xer with four kids. I've got a, a smashed L1 vertebrae. Uh, I've got weak knees. Sometimes I've got bad gas. Those are my physical issues I deal with, and my daughters and wife can confirm that last one. I'm a pastor and a teacher. I'm a California resident. I'm a U.S. citizen. I have a master's degree from Hope International University. And by the way, I'm a Christian. That, my friends, is my identity. Or is it? Is it? Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused. He refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Harriet Tubman refused to be known as anyone's slave. And if you and I are walking in faith as true believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we should do some refusing of our own, wouldn't you say? So what is wrong with our culture's top 12 list? If we are followers of Jesus Christ, why shouldn't we find our identity in our whiteness or in our blackness or in our Hispanicness? Why shouldn't we find our identity in our sexuality or in our gender identity? Why shouldn't we find our identity in our political affiliation or in our marital status or in our psychological disorders? Because as we discovered last week, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We should not find our identity in the stuff of this world because we, remember, are just temporary residents on this planet. We are just visitors here. For a short time, our permanent address is there in heaven. And so doesn't it stand to reason, if this is a temporary place, and everything in this world one day is going to pass away, doesn't it stand to reason that our identity should be grounded in the things that are eternal, in the presence of God, which is our permanent address where we're going to be for all eternity as we follow Christ? We discovered last week that this world is not our home. So with that being said, it is foolish For us to attach our identity to the things of this world. Because everything on this top 12 list is someday going to pass away, won't it? Did you know that there isn't going to be this top 12 list in heaven? Our skin color is literally only skin deep. I love how Ben Carson, one of the greatest brain surgeons in the history of the world, who's now the uh, chair of the, uh, uh, the HUD department under our president. And I love how Ben Carson, as a neurosurgeon, describes, he says, once you peel back the skin to do brain surgery, I cannot tell the difference between someone who is black, white, Hispanic, or Asian. Once you peel back that thin layer of epidermis, he can't tell the difference. The brains, the internal organs, they all look the same. 
Color is only skin deep. Why do we base so much of our identity on color? We're not going to be doing that in heaven. Why on earth would we allow our identity to be grounded in our sexuality? It's just something temporary here on earth. We won't take our sexuality to heaven. Why on earth would we want to ground our identity in our gender identity? That makes no sense. Do you realize there are not going to be uh, 58 gender identities in heaven? Do you realize there are not going to be New York City's 31 gender identities in heaven? You want to know something? There won't even be two, it would seem. In Matthew 19, Jesus says we're going to be in heaven like the angels, not being married or given in marriage. It seems pretty clear that gender is a thing of earth, not even a thing of heaven. So why would we ground our identity in that? We won't be Republicans or Democrats or liberals or conservatives in heaven. We won't be married in heaven. We won't have our same jobs in heaven. We won't have our physical and psychological labels in heaven. Thank God for that. You can stand next to me 24-7 in heaven and I won't gas you out. It's a beautiful thing. We won't be California residents or U.S. citizens in heaven. Every one of these 12 sources of people's identities is temporary and will one day pass away. So when it comes to taking hold of your identity, God would like you to take our sinful culture's top 12 list and scrap it. He'd like you to throw out the entire list and start from scratch. Clean slate. Back to the drawing board. So, question of the hour. Where do we as Christians find our real identity? The short and sweet answer is, just like Harriet Tubman, we find our identity in Christ. We find our true identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Before you accepted Christ, you found your identity somewhere on that top 12 list. But when you accepted Christ, you said, throw out the top 12. We are going to start from scratch. You are a brand new creation. And you find your identity, he says, in me. Before Jesus became your Lord and Savior, you probably did find your identity somewhere in that 12. But he says, not anymore. Scrap the list. Because at the heart of what it means to be a Christian is a brand new identity. Amen? That brand new identity is not centered on the temporary things of this world. It's centered on Christ. So Christians, stop allowing our sinful culture to label you. Stop allowing our sinful culture to squeeze you into its mold of your identity as it believes it should be. The Word of God says don't conform to the pattern of this world. Stop allowing the world to define who you are. The world doesn't define who I am. The Lord Jesus Christ defines who I am. Allow Jesus to find who you are, your true identity is in Christ, and here's what He says that you are. you ready for this? Number one, if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, if He is your Lord and Savior, number one, He says, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. Now we read in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. So that verse teaches us that every single person on this planet is a precious creation of God. But notice, that verse stops short of saying that we are children of God. Every person on the planet is a precious creation of God, but most people on this planet are not children of God. That can only come through Christ. And so we read in John 1.12, To all who receive Jesus, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Only those who are in Christ are adopted into God's family. And only those adopted into God's family are truly children of God. So allow God's word to sink deeply into your mind and heart today. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, your identity first and foremost is found in Christ, you are a child of God. Amen? Who are you? I am a... Who are you? I am a... And I've just got to reiterate it, if you missed it the first time, if you have not made that decision to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, if you have not invited Him into your heart, if you have not repented of your sin and obeyed Him in Christian baptism, then you are a precious creation of God, but you are not yet a child of God. I hope you make that decision today. As we set up the baptistry next week, I hope that you'll be baptized if you've never made that decision. Making it clear to God, the angels, and anyone who's watching, I am following Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord from this point forward. Number two, you're not simply a child of God. Jesus says says, this is the second part of your identity. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. Who are you? You are a child of God, number one. Who are you? Number two, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. About 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he gave some final instructions to his 12 apostles, or 11 at that time. Judas had committed suicide by then. So he gave these final instructions to the 11. And he said, I want you to know your, your job is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus went back to heaven. He made it clear, your job is to make disciples. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. The simpler way we say that is just, we are followers of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, what is the source of your identity? Who are you? Number one, I am a... Who are you? Number two, you are a... And Jesus says, number three, you are a loved member of a forever family. Amen? You are a loved member of a forever family. Galatians 3, 26 and 28 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? Some of you look at your biological natural families and say, I love them. I love my family. Others look at your natural biological family and say, Not so much. But regardless of whether you love your biological family or can't stand them, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we are in the same boat. We've got a family that's so much better than any family here on earth. It's the eternal family with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're here today and your parents have rejected you, or your spouse has rejected you, or your kids have rejected you, or your second cousins and their 13 roommates have rejected you. Jesus Christ will not reject you as you reach out and receive Him. We're a part. We're a part of a forever family. It's great news. No matter who you are or where you're from, if Jesus Christ is in the driver's seat of your life, you are a child of God. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. And you are part of a forever family. And I just want to say this in closing. Some of you struggle with insecurity and inferiority. Some of you struggle with discouragement and depression, thinking you're not worth much. 
Let me suggest to you today, if you struggle with inferiority, if you struggle with depression, part of the reason may be you've tried to find your identity in that top 12 list that our culture is forced upon you. And I'm here to tell you, if you're trying to find your true identity on that top 12 list, you're always going to find yourself disappointed. But if you choose to find your identity in Jesus Christ, He will lift you up to that perfect creation that He made you to be. He will see you through these valleys that you've been going through. Your identity is in Him. Take that to heart today. You are a child of God. Take that to heart today. You are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Woohoo! There's a lot of people I like following, but none do I like following like I like following Jesus. And you, no matter what your natural family was like, no matter how they treated you, no matter what they did to you, if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you're a part of a loved forever family that loves you and cares for you and will be here for you. Come thick and thin. Father, we love You. And we thank You for making a way for us to have our true identity realized in Christ. And Lord, some of us might be thinking, if we have to scrap that top 12 list, am I, am I scrapping everything about me? Everything that makes me, me? And Lord, I pray if there's any of that thought in our minds and hearts that You would reveal to us, Lord, in this moment, that anything we give up for You is in the long run not a loss at all. As we discover our true identity in You, we can be more ourselves than ever before. We can be who You created us to be. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who's struggling with depression. I lift them up to You, O God. Anyone who's struggling with fear, with some decisions they face, I lift them up to You, O God. Anyone who's struggling in their relationships, anyone, Lord, who's experiencing temptations and difficulties with their sexuality or with their gender identity and all this confusion that the world has thrown at us. Lord, I pray that You would speak to them today and lead them into Your perfect vision, Your perfect picture of what You created them to be. Lord, we love You. Thank You for clarifying what the world has confused. Thank You for cutting through our sinful culture's false identities. And revealing the true ones, Lord. Thank You, Lord. We love You. We praise Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen.